Mark 11, verse 20, as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree wither from the roots up and being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father who is in heaven will also forgive you for your offenses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father who is in heaven forgive your offenses. Jesus, we just ask right now in advance, as I seek to teach the Bible this morning, your word, God, we just pray that you would show us the area of our life where we are falling short, that you would show us where we can come up a little bit higher, that you would show us the areas in our life where you desire to intervene. Would you make it clear? Would you make it plain today, Father? I'm asking that you provide answers to people's problems this morning, people's dilemmas and issues that they came in with this morning. God, I'm asking for them on their behalf that you will provide guidance, insight through your word so that they will know what their responsibility is and what you plan to do in their life. Help us to get in alignment with your will this morning. God, I just pray that you will remove every spiritual hindrance, every thought that's not from you. Lord, we know Satan wants to snatch the word out of people's hearts before it falls on good ground. So I'm asking, Father, that you would hinder his activity over the next two hours, that you would allow us to be able to encounter you unhindered because you are sovereign over him and everything else in this world. So we are asking for supernatural hindrance from the domain of the enemy that he would not come in and do what he already wants to do. And that is keep your people from hearing your word and growing. Lord, I'm asking for a word of encouragement to come out of my mouth today. I have a difficult text, but Lord, I pray that you would equip me to teach it and articulate it accurately so that you will be pleased with our efforts this morning and we'll be mindful to give your name all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about how in the book of Mark, uh, you have these themes, you have these patterns that you see repeated And I talked about how there's this constant theme of faith and authority. Jesus wants to demonstrate his authority, and he wants to show us that faith is the prerequisite for seeing the hand of God move in our life. And today, (laughs) although I just preached a sermon about two weeks ago on faith and prayer, we get to Mark chapter 11, and guess what the subject matter is again? Faith and prayer. So this shows me... That if Jesus keeps talking about this over and over again, 
is something that he saw as important, something that he saw as vital to the Christian life, to the Christian walk, because he made, converse, made mention of it in his conversations over and over again. Even in life, if you ever are praying about something or you just see different things happening and it's happening repeatedly, usually that's a sign from the Lord that he's trying to communicate something to you. So if every time you turn on Christian radio and you hear a sermon about forgiveness or something like that, or every time you're talking about some, talking with somebody Forgiveness or something like that keeps coming up. Usually that's a sign from the Lord that he's trying to communicate something that he wants us to get. So when I walk through the book of Mark and I keep seeing this theme of prayer and faith, it lets me know that not just as a church in general, but here at Living Stones Church, I believe the Lord wants to encourage us about this thing called prayer and faith. But as you're going to see just in a few moments, uh, Jesus's approach to prayer and faith is going to is going to create a bit of theological controversy because of some teaching that's out here in the world. And I have this wonderful task this morning <laughs> to try to put out the fire while at the same time being faithful to the text. So let's go ahead and take a look at it. Mark chapter 11, Jesus has just kicked everybody out the temple. He spoke to the fig tree as a symbol of what he was about to do to to Israel, the judgment he was about to bring upon them. And here's what it says in verse 20. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree wither from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So the fig tree that we saw earlier in chapter 11, remember Jesus spoke to it. He was acting out his prophetic word, the judgment on Israel. Mark picks the story back up and he brings our attention right back to the fig tree. And it says they're walking past the fig tree the next day. And Peter's like, hey, Jesus, look, remember that fig tree you cursed? It worked because the fig tree is withered. So when you said let nobody eat from it again, your words Cause this to happen. So Peter is obviously perplexed as any of us would be. But it's Jesus's response to Peter's astonishment that creates some problems. Verse 21, I'm sorry, verse 22. Look at how Jesus responded to that. And Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Jesus's response to the fig tree episode is to have faith in God. Then he says, if you say to this mountain, notice when he says, he says this mountain, he doesn't say a mountain. So Jesus is likely either talking about the Mount of Olives that's right there next to him, or he's talking about the mountain upon which the temple sat on. So he's looking at a mountain and he says to his disciples, if you say to this mountain right here, be cast into the sea, which would have been the dead sea that was right there, He says, if you speak to that mountain and cast it into the sea and you don't doubt it, 
But believe that whatever you say is going to happen, it will happen. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, that looks like uh, name it, claim it, (laughs) speak it into existence, manifest it, create your own reality with your words, positive confession, whatever new age title you want to put on it. When I hear Jesus talking about speaking to mountains and things happening based on what you say to it, it makes me feel uncomfortable because I don't believe in that stuff. You guys have heard me multiple times from this stage and every stage y'all have followed me through. I've made reference to this type of teaching because I believe it's dangerous. This speaking things and whatever you speak is going to happen. That stuff is rooted in Hinduism and other ancient uh, uh, Eastern religions. It's not a Christian thing. But I'm looking at what Jesus said. And I got to deal with it because <laughs> I didn't get this from some guy on TBN or Christian television. Jesus said we should be speaking to mountains. So I can't just skip over that because I don't like it. I got to spend some time there and try to figure out, OK, what does Jesus mean? Because because if he's agreeing with all this other stuff I'm seeing on TV, I got to break down my entire belief system and build it back up. But maybe he means something a little different than how this is commonly explained. First thing we got to do is define what a mountain is. Jesus is looking at a literal mountain, right? But he's using the word metaphorically. In other words, he's speaking figuratively, even though the thing that he's talking about is really there. He's trying to make a deeper point, as he always do. So here's what he means when he says a mountain. In the biblical mindset, a mountain is any type of problem that seems unfixable. So. Anything that's standing in your way between you and wherever your destiny is, and it seems that it's too much to bear, the Bible calls that a mountain. Mountains are heavy. Mountains are rooted deeply into the foundation. They don't move unless something uh, catastrophic happens to the foundation to make it move. Mountains that was there 10 years ago. A hundred years ago are still there now because mountains don't naturally move. Right. So a mountain to us would be that thing. That keeps consuming us. It's like we feel like we have a calling from the Lord and God is saying, I'm calling you to this. But every time you pursue this, this mountain keeps standing in your way. The mountain is what you think about after the smiles are gone and and the. Conversations with friends are over and you're back in your bed and it's just you. Whatever you're thinking about that's worrying you or causing you anxiety or pain, that's usually the mountain. Whatever that thing is where no matter how far you seem to go, no matter how much effort you seem to make, it just keep popping up. That's probably your mountain. The thing that makes you the most afraid and scared. It's probably your mountain. The thing that you find yourself either praying about the most or not praying about at all because it seemed too big to be fixed. That's probably your mountain. 
Now, I want you to do something real quick, because we're going to look at, I don't want you to just assume that my explanation of the mountain being metaphorical, I don't want you to assume that I'm just making that up. So we're going to look at the scripture in a minute. But before we do that, I want you to close your eyes for a minute. I want everybody here to close their eyes. And I want you to think real good and hard for a few moments about what your mountain is. Just seek the Lord for a second. If you already know what it is, some of you, when you heard me talking, you already knew what your mountain was. Others, you may be wrestling with it. So I want you to just take a few moments and think, what is your mountain? Could be emotional, could be physical, could be trauma, could be grief, could be sin, could be a struggle, temptation. Just think about it. Everybody know what their mountain is? Let me give it a few more moments. All right, now that, now that we know what our mountain is, I want you to imagine a world in which that mountain was no longer there. Because what typically happens is, whatever the mountain is, we can't imagine a life without it because we're so used to it being there. So I just want you to think about what life would be like if God was to be gracious enough to move it. Let's take a few moments and think of that. Now I want you to think about what life will be like if the mountain isn't moved, but God gives you enough grace perseverance and strength to go through life despite the mountain. I want you to imagine that. Amen. Doing all this for a reason. I know this is not my traditional style of preaching, but I really want us to encounter God today. Because we burdened down by problems, man, and, and that stuff is, it, Satan will use that until we push back, period. I've been saved long enough to know that. If you just lay down and say, devil, just have your way, he will take your advice and accept your invitation. But that's not, listen, the Bible does not say that's the attitude we're supposed to have as believers. It's a certain level of boldness, confidence, and faith we're supposed to have in God and I, I think we just laying down. So we're going to try to we're going to try to work against that today. So now that we, we went through those exercises, I want you to remember whatever that mountain was. Keep that in your mind for the rest of the day. OK. Chantrice, can we get Zechariah, the fourth chapter? Now, let me explain what's going on here. Zechariah is a prophet and. It has come time for the temple to be rebuilt. Israel has been in captivity in Babylon because of their sin. God in his grace, is a, he's going to gather the Israelites back and the temple is going to be restored. Right. 
but it ain't going to be easy. It's God's will for the temple to be rebuilt, but some stuff going to happen to make that almost impossible to do. So God raises up the prophet Zechariah and he sends him to a man named Zerubbabel, who's the king. He's the descendant of David and he's, he's the heir to the throne. And under his kingship, that temple going to be rebuilt. So he wants Zerubbabel to know in advance, God is going to do what he said, but you're going to go through hell to see it happen. This is what the prophet says. Verse six. Then he said to me. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain and he shall bring for he, he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. What does that prophetic word means? Zechariah goes to Zerubbabel and he says, listen, this is what the Lord says. He says, who is this great mountain? It's a metaphor that stands in your way. He's like, Zerubbabel, I know you feel like this temple will never be built. But I am telling you, that is a mountain that's standing in front of you. And God's promise to him is that the mountain will become a plain. Now, how is the mountain going to become a plain? Verse six, not by might. Nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. His, his promise to Zerubbabel is this mountain cannot be moved by your power, by your might or your strength. But because I said the temple will, will be rebuilt, let it be known now by my spirit. I'm going to intervene so that whatever it is that's blocking y'all is going to get torn down. Now, let's go back to Mark. This shows us that mountains are metaphorical, right? Zerubbabel's mountain was, and I don't have time to explain the whole story. Read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Took 15 years to build the temple because a spies came out and made it impossible to build it. And God dealt with all of them. So the mountain is metaphorical. What, what Zechariah wanted him to know was God's responsibility is to tear down mountains. It's not our responsibility. Now, let's see if Jesus agrees with that. Let's see if Jesus agrees. Go back to Mark chapter 11. Look at what he says. Now, let's take it from verse 23. Truly, I say to you, actually, go up one verse. Let's take it back to verse 22. And Jesus answered them, have faith in who? So whatever it is speaking to the mountain thing is, understand, his first statement was have faith in God because it is God who's about to move the mountain. It's not us. It's not our words. It's not our authority. It's nothing about us. God, who's the object of faith, says, I'm going to move your mountain the same way I remove Zerubbabel's. He says, have faith in God. That tells us who the object is. Next verse. Now he says, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown in the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. So who's moving the mountain? But who's doing the speaking? Us. And it says he's speaking to the mountain. Now we just showed the mountain is the problem. So Jesus is saying we're supposed to speak to a problem 
with the expectation that something's going to happen. Now, I don't like this. (laughs) I don't like this. I don't do this. (laughs) But I got to take this man's words seriously. Now, when he says, speak to the mountain, what does that really mean and what does that look like? The next verse is going to give us a hint. Verse 24. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it'll be yours. Now, let me tell you a Bible study tip that I teach people. And anytime I'm teaching a class or whatever, people ask me questions. See that word, therefore, in verse 24? That's what you cost a technical word for, but it, it connects The present statement with the previous statement. It's equivalent to our term because of this. So when he says, therefore, he's explaining what he just said in verse 23 with a new statement. So we ain't got to try to figure out what verse 23 means because Jesus is going to tell us what it means. Verse 24, therefore, everything I said about this mountain, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it. What does this tell us? There is a correlation between declaration over a problem and praying about a problem. You you can't have one of those and ignore the other one. If you only have the speaking part, you were a faith movement. Prosperity gospel, positive confession, speaking into existence. That's what you're going to end up doing. Jesus says, The speaking, therefore, is connected with the asking. This means that the speaking over a problem and the praying about a problem are supposed to be in union with one another. Now, as I'm studying this all week, I'm trying to figure out because I never knew that. (laughs) This is new to me, right? I'm spending hours trying to figure this out. And I'm like, okay, God, how does that look, though? Because if I'm speaking about something, what's the point of praying about it? And what's the point of praying about it if I could just speak it? I I must be missing something here. So I sat in my chair. Do what I always do. Start praying. (laughs) Let me tell y'all, preachers and teachers, biblical interpretation is not a mere intellectual exercise. It's a spiritual exercise in which you got to seek God for some type of enlightenment or you can get as many degrees as you want. It still won't make sense. So I'm like, God, I need you to show me what this means. Here's what I think happened. Two scriptures came to mind. One is in the life of Elijah the prophet. The other is in the life of Jesus. In both of these stories I'm about to share on the screen, you're going to see prayer about a problem and speaking to the problem in the same story. All I needed was one example (laughs) for me to be able to preach this with conviction. God gave me two. So how does prayer and the declaration, the spoken word work together? Let's try to make sense out of this. Let me get 1 Kings 
chapter 17. All right, so let me give you a background. Elijah's a prophet, one of my favorite characters in the Bible. That's why my oldest boy is named Elijah. Israel is in idolatry. All the prophets, most of them have gone astray and have become prophets to false idols. They dying, they getting murdered and martyred for their faith. And God is about to bring a famine on Israel, meaning that it ain't going to rain. Okay, agricultural place, if there's no rain, people don't eat. Okay, they don't have, they can't go to Giant Eagle. All right, so if there's no rain, it's going to be bad for the land. Elijah's the prophet who's going to bring this situation up. Look what it says in verse one. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand. There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Elijah, bad boy. If you ever get time, read first, first the book of First Kings. This story is crazy. According to the prophet, he said, ain't no more rain falling in Israel except by whose word? Sound like he the weatherman. He's saying, I got authority to control what comes out of these clouds. He says, it will not rain unless I speak it. That's what he said, right? Except by my word. Now, let me get James chapter five. Now, Elijah got to do what for the rain? Speak it. Get James chapter 5. Do we got James? Okay. All right, everybody go to James chapter 5. Let's read this together. Is there a connection between the spoken word what's going on here. All right. James chapter five. Let's look at verse 16. Everybody got it? Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. A prayer of a righteous person, when it is brought about, can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. James is reading the same Old Testament we got. According to James, what did Elijah do to bring the rain down? Pray. But according to 1 Kings chapter 17, what did Elijah do to bring the rain down? Spoke it. Now, either we got a contradiction or prayer and the spoken word are being used in union with one another. 
So the next question is, when in the book of Kings does it say that Elijah prayed for the rain? Let me get 1 Kings chapter 18. Let's see here. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. Oh, no, 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 that's good. Yep, verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up and eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go now, look toward the sea. And when he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again seven times. Next verse. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind. And there was a great rain and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. It says that Elijah says he bowed down and it says he put his head between his knees. This was an ancient way of fervent prayer to God. In fact, some scholars believe that he was getting in the posture of giving birth like the women would do when they would travail in birth. It was the, it was the physically show the travailing in prayer that he was going to going through. That's why he said seven times he's. He's literally crying out to God for what? That it would rain. <laughs> so we see that James is right. Elijah prayed that it would rain, and that's what brought about the rain. But we still got this verse that said that he spoke the rain. So how is it that he can speak the rain to happen and pray about it? How, what is the uniting force that brings it all together? Look at 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. This is the part that connects the piece to the puzzle. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. All right. Now, don't miss the small, the small detail here. First Kings chapter 18, verse one. Now it happened. After many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Saying, go present yourself to Ahab and I will provide rain on the face of the earth. I'm going to read that again. Listen closely. Remember, chapter 17, Elijah said. Except by my word, there's no rain. The next chapter. Now, what happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go present yourself to Ahab and I will provide rain on the face of the earth. God just told Elijah that he was going to bring 
rain. It's not till later that Elijah prayed for rain. Connect the dots. Somewhere in between the prayer for rain and God telling Elijah that there would be rain, Elijah declared rain. This means that his declaration of the rain was not because he was trying to create something that he just wanted to happen. His declaration of the rain was because Yahweh came to him in advance and said, it's going to be rain. So Elijah can now boldly go out telling everybody it's about the rain up in here because God told me rain is coming. Now I can speak the rain because I got a word from God that is going to happen and God never lies. However, even though God said it was going to happen, Elijah still had a responsibility to pray and bring it to pass. Listen, there are certain mountains we have in our life. The first step is to ask God, are you going to move this? No sense in me speaking anything if you said you ain't moving it. Let me prove it to you. When the Israelites would go to war in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, guess what they would do? They would go to the prophet. The Bible says they would inquire of the Lord, should we go up against the Philistines? Because if you ain't going to go before us, we're going to lose. But if you say you're going to go ahead of us, then we'll go to battle. Same thing with mountains. You go to God in prayer and you say, God, I need a word from you. If you if it is your will for this mountain to come tumbling down, I need you to speak it clearly to me. And I need you to keep confirming it multiple times. And I need you to speak it through other brothers and sisters who love you, who have your spirit and who have my best interest at heart. If you do that, now I got confirmation. Now I got confidence to speak to this mountain that is going to move because you already said it will move. Let me give you another example. Anybody ever heard the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11? Let's take a brief look at that. John chapter 11. John, the 11th chapter. Background, Lazarus has, that's Jesus' friend. He has died, and he's been dead for a few days now. Word gets back to Jesus. They're like, if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. And they're blaming him, and they're mad. Look at what it says in verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus is praying a prayer of thanksgiving. And in his prayer, in verse 41, he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Now, I didn't teach English in school. I ain't had the best grades. But heard is past tense. Jesus is praying and he's saying, God, I thank you that you heard me already. But I'm only saying it so everybody around can hear it, too. Keep that in mind. Verse 43, when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hand and his feet bound with linen strips 
and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. If Jesus said, I prayed already about Lazarus, says he, Father, I thank you that you heard me. This means that before he got to the tomb, what did Jesus do? He went to the father, say, God, we got a big one. <laughs> I, I need even though he's God in the flesh as man, he relied upon the power of the spirit. So so he even though he knew what he could do, he went to God and he said, Lazarus done died. And they blaming me for it. God. I want a resurrection because because God is triune. The father don't do nothing without the son. The son don't do nothing without the spirit. So they commune and convene with one another. The father alleged apparently gave Jesus the OK that Lazarus was going to rise from the dead. Now that he received the word from the Lord through prayer. What's the next thing he does in verse 43? Speaks to Lazarus. That death is the mountain here. Goes to God in prayer. God, what are we going to do? We're going to raise him up. All right, cool. Goes to the tomb, speaks to it with confidence. Why? God gives the confirmation of his word. We go to him in prayer. Then we have authority and boldness to speak to that problem that God has already confirmed he will deal with. This is the only way to reconcile the fact that we can be speaking to stuff and stuff don't change. See, here's what word, faith, speak it into existence, don't tell people. Let me rephrase it. Here's what they do tell people. You speak stuff into existence and they don't manifest, it's because your faith ain't big enough. So now people go through all this type of grief and pain, and now they feel like God is mad at them. When Jesus never said we're supposed to be able to control everything, y'all know that makes us God, right, if we can do that. Let's go to Mark chapter 11. The speaking and the removal of the mountain only works when God gives us confirmation of what he's going to do. And then we pray and we speak based on that. Amen. Now look at what he says in verse 24. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. Now, here's this, Here's the part. And whenever you stand praying. Forgive. If you have anything against anyone. So that your father who was in heaven will also forgive you your offenses. But if you do not forgive. Neither will your father who was in heaven forgive your Offenses. All right. Psalm 66 and 18 says, if we regard iniquity in our hearts, God will not hear us. If we regard iniquity in our hearts, God will not hear us. What does that mean? That means that if we have unconfessed, unrepentant sin in our life, no reason to even bother going to God in prayer because he's going to be like this. That's what sin does. Separates us from God. Right. We're going to explain this verse. 
what we're going to do, I'm going to have them put up a slide in which we're going to talk about the specific sins that the Bible mentions that will hinder the prayer life of the believer. The first one is what we see in verse 25. Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, do what? Forgive. Now, specifically, this is most likely talking about if you're praying a prayer of forgiveness, right? So if you're going to God and you're like, God, I forgive me for, I was Danina, was you talking about road rage earlier? <laughs> like, like say, Danina, talk about road rage. She go to God. She like, Lord, forgive me of my road rage. But she didn't forgive the person who just yelled at her five minutes ago. God is like, leave your prayer closet. Go forgive this person. Clean that up. Now you can talk to me because why, how can you ask me to forgive you when you're not forgiving other people? So that's specifically the type of prayer he's talking about. But there is a general application that if we want to hear God in prayer, remember the prayer is about moving mountains, then we need to deal with our sin, right? So how does this look? Because I know, you know, we think, well, what about if it's a person who has not acknowledged any guilt? You know, what do we do in that situation? The Bible says forgive, but let's say this person don't feel like they did anything wrong when clearly they did. How do I forgive that person? Do I just hold on to a grudge? Here's what I believe you do. And I was, I was just talking about this at a training I was just at. It's about fixing your attitude and your posture in a way that you are forgiven towards a person even though they have not taken any responsibility for what they've done. In other words, let's say Isaac kicked me in my knee. And I say, Isaac, why you kick me in my knee, man? Well, your knee shouldn't have been there. You, know, you say something ignorant. I can't wait around for Isaac to see it my way. Number one, that's going to chew me up, eat me up. I have to go to God and say, okay, God, I'm releasing this situation to you. Because you've forgiven me in the midst of my mess, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. I don't have a right to hold anything against this person. So they don't think they did nothing wrong. That's fine. But I'm going to you, God, and I'm telling you, I'll release this person. I forgive them. I'm, I'm, I'm letting go of whatever they have done. I'm not going to hold this against them. And I'm going to leave it in your hands because you said be at peace with all men in as much as it depends on you. Romans chapter 12. So, God, I'm leaving it at your feet. Now, when I see this person, the relationship has not been reconciled yet because there has not been repentance. However, you said love your neighbor as yourself. You even said love your enemies. So even though this person has not taken responsibility, when I see them, I still got to show them love the same way I would my neighbor. Or an enemy, I have to show them love while understanding that the relationship is not restored back to where it was yet because they have not repented. That's our responsibility. Jesus said, if you don't do that, that mountain or whatever you're dealing with is guaranteed to stay there because it is the prerequisite of seeing God move. Does that make sense? So let's forgive people. Now, there are other things I want to talk about before we get out of here. Let's go ahead and walk through the list. Some of the things that will stand in the way of answer prayer. The sin of marital 
mistreatment. The sin of marital mistreatment. Let's look at that verse. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, I didn't write that. <laughs> Peter said, husbands, listen, man and women are different. If you marry, you should know that by now. Man is not better than woman. Woman is not better than man. But we different. God made us different on purpose. Our wiring is different. The way we think and process things are typically different. We are just different. Physically, we're different. We are different types of people, right? Now, the beauty behind that is that, it, 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 especially when you've been married long enough, you begin to show those differences complementing each other. So for me and my wife, there's certain things that I'm not good at, that she's great at, <laughs> that I've been able to improve just from being married to the woman and vice versa. Right. So so it's a good thing that those differences are there. But those differences can cause tension in the relationship. Peter knows this because it could start making the man act a certain way, which he calls not being understanding. Now, that's a, this ain't a, a marriage sermon, but it's a whole lot I can say about that. Right. But husbands have the tendency to do that. I would say more than women do being non understanding. He says, here's what you're supposed to do. Show her honor. To the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, when people see the weaker vessel part, they're like, man, this this Bible is sexist and and is male dominated and, and wives got to submit and all this different stuff. Read this verse carefully, y'all. Peter is saying, God loves these women so much that if the husband is not treating them properly, he doing this. God says, I won't even listen to the husband's prayer if he's mistreating his wife. How is that sexist? That don't sound male dominated to me. That sounds like God has a heart that is tender towards his daughters. And he says that if the man not going to do right by them, then don't even bother talking to me. Get right with your wife first. Then we got something to talk about. So for my married man in the room. OK, being a jerk. Don't laugh, boys. My kids always laugh when I say jerk. <laughs> being a jerk to your wife, not being understanding. You, and you know what it is in your own situation. We've all done it. Peter says you're going to have mountains for a long time. Next one. The sin of unbelief, the sin of unbelief or a lack of faith. Look at what James says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. And we've been talking about that for weeks. Faith is needed for prayer. Meaning we don't go to God with this pitiful disposition that we have sometimes. Okay, we go to God with confidence and faith that he is a God who's able. Whether he's willing or not, he's able 
excuse me, to do whatever he, he wants to do. Next one. <laughs> the sin of not praying. Ain't that crazy? Why do I call this the sin of not praying? Because if God constantly commands us to pray, y'all know prayer in the Bible is not a suggestion. Paul's, like it's an imperative. Paul's, pray without ceasing. It's a command. So if you're disobeying a command of God, what are you doing? Sinning. The sin of not praying. Let's look at the scripture. James 4, 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. He says some of the problems we have with a lack of answer prayer is because we're not asking God for anything. And we expect God to be, oh, God, know my heart, so you're just going to make it happen. No, he wants us to humbly come before him and ask. Next one. This is a big one. The sin of selfishness. Let's look at it. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It says you ask and you pray with wrong motivation. So you're praying for things, especially monetary things. And he says your whole purpose of praying is to spend it on yourself. When was the last time you prayed for somebody else's financial situation? When was the last time we prayed for God to bless us with more so we can bless people with more? We typically don't. We pray for God to bless us so we can get fat off God's blessings. We don't think about other people because we tend to be selfish. Those are just some of the things that the Bible mentions. That will stand in the way of prayer. So why did I bring that up? We're talking about the removal of mountains, right? Listen, we can pray and get confirmation from the Lord all day. But if we have not dealt with the sin problem, nothing's going to change. Things will remain the same.